0: Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I'm speaking with Congressman Anthony Brown, Vice Chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman Brown has represented Maryland's fourth congressional district since 2017, and he's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Congressman Brown is also a co-chair of the New Democrat Coalition National Security Task Force, and he's a retired colonel in the United States Army Reserve. Our conversation on building diversity and combating prejudice in the U.S. Armed Forces was previously recorded during a CSIS event we held in July of 2020. Congressman Brown, welcome to CSIS, and thank you for your leadership on these issues. The floor is yours.
1: Thanks for inviting me to participate in what I, I believe, as you mentioned, is a, an overdue conversation, particularly when it comes to uh, diversity inclusion in the military. Uh, this country is at an inflection point, uh, and it's an inflection point in terms of uh, both American leadership at home uh, and abroad. Uh, I believe that the course of actions that we take uh, now will impact uh, the security of generations to come. Uh, We're facing public health uh, issues, uh, the need to defeat the novel coronavirus and wrestle this pandemic to the ground. It's a national security issue. Uh, Cushioning the economic fallout for our families and local businesses and communities is a national security issue. And yes, addressing systemic racism uh, that has persisted in this country since our founding is a national security issue. Uh, when the need for federal action is so great uh, to expand health care, to keep families in their homes, to help working families crushed by student loan debt and facing the threat of eviction starting next week. Uh, Some have suggested that this country must prioritize either national security issues or domestic policy. Uh, They argue that we don't have the ability to accomplish all of our goals, or address the many issues facing the American people. I believe that this is a false dichotomy, a false choice uh, that only serves to narrow our vision of what's possible. Uh, We have to recognize that domestic programs and spending uh, bolsters our national security. uh, And conversely, that investing in our own national security and institutions will help further the necessary change we're looking for here at home. Uh, Recent events have also highlighted and widened uh, the existing disparities, gaps, and inequities along racial lines in America, uh, witnessed by the many peaceful protests across this country calling for police accountability and reform. Uh, we're at a time when a pandemic has widened disparities in healthcare, education, economic opportunity, and housing along racial lines. And our armed services are not and cannot be thought of uh, as being immune. Uh, to these challenges uh, and the change that is happening in this country. Uh, Today, our military continues to grapple uh, with the same inequities that have plagued this country since our founding. Uh, We cannot talk around this issue or pin our hopes to the changing face of this country. Uh, We need to be in a dialogue about the significance of race and the responsibility that each of us have uh, to address the racial disparities we face as a nation. Uh, To confront the crisis this country faces at this moment, Uh, we know that, and I certainly believe that, uh, race neutral solutions won't suffice. Uh, That's uh, important to remember as we approach diversity, inclusion, and issues of race within the ranks of the armed forces. Like every institution, our military is strengthened by different viewpoints, backgrounds, and life experiences. In short, the diversity of our armed forces is one of our greatest assets, but we have fallen far short of our expectations, the expectations that were set when President Truman ordered the integration of the armed forces in 1948. Unconscious and conscious biases impact how black soldiers advance, what assignments and career fields they receive, and how they're treated and assessed. Black soldiers are far too underrepresented within military leadership and in in our elite units. Uh, These issues didn't happen suddenly, but festered unchecked by a culture that included a combination of intolerance indifference and ignorance Uh, we've made progress and this year we've witnessed historic barrier breaking first Uh, general charles brown became the air force's 22nd chief of staff the first african-american to lead a service branch chief master sergeant joanne bass was selected as the first woman to serve as the highest ranking non-commissioned officer in the military service and lieutenant junior grade madeline Swagel who I had just the delightful pleasure to speak with on the phone uh, just last week, uh, became the Navy's first black female tactical jet pilot. And uh, the US Army just welcomed its first female Green Beret. But there's more work to be done. Uh, During this year's NDAA, uh, we took important steps to create a more inclusive military that welcomes all who wish to serve our country in uniform. We built on the work of majority whip Jim Clyburn, and former members of the House of Representatives, Elijah Cummings and Kendrick Meek, who together in 2008 and 2009 uh, worked to establish uh, the Military Leadership Diversity Commission. And as members of the Black Caucus uh, then, almost 12 years ago, uh, they recognized that the military wasn't living up to that unlocked potential uh, that uh, was unlocked when President Truman signed the executive order. And the diversity and inclusion provisions found in this year's NDA, or at least in the House version, which I know we'll talk more about, put many of those of that commission's recommendations into action. Uh, This NDA represents, I believe, one of the most significant steps towards diversity and inclusion uh, that Congress itself has taken since the desegregation of the armed forces in 1948. They recognize the important role uh, the military and the broader defense community must play as our country looks to address these challenges and emerge stronger. Um, the culture that we create in our armed services matters. Diversity and inclusion in our armed services matters. It enhances unit cohesion, improves military readiness. And we've known that since 1950.
0: Thank you so much, Congressman. And uh, you, you pointed out the desegregation of the military in, under Truman. Coming out of World War II, we, we've all grown up being taught that the military, U.S. military, is an engine of social mobility um an engine to counter racism uh and here we are these many years later uh and as you point out the representation at the senior levels of the military is extraordinarily low albeit changing um inch by inch and then you mentioned in passing the statistics on the elite units which i know is part of your legislative package and just to give some statistics for the audience only five percent of the army green beret 2% 2% of Navy SEALs, and 0.6% of Air Force pararescue jumpers are Black today. What's your diagnosis of what's missing or wrong, and how does the legislative package that you've put forward, along with your co-sponsors into this NDAA, help change that culture?
1: You know, Dr. Hicks, th- there are a number of things going on, uh, and on the on the one end of the spectrum, um, you do have... Uh, many um, African-American, uh, Latino, uh, and, and to a lesser extent, I think, women uh, who enter the military service, uh, and they're not inclined to go into those fields that have higher rates of promotion to the highest ranks, right? So in the Army, and I'll, I usually use Army as an example, I'm an Army guy. Um, you know, you're talking about infantry um, and, and field artillery, armor, of course, special operations. Um, And uh, what you see is often a desire uh, to go into the military and develop a very uh, unique skill, perhaps in logistics, uh, in cyber, um, in finance, uh, with an eye towards a a short tour of duty, uh, and then, you know, into the civilian sector. Um, So part of this is really, and this is why in the NDA, we're we're, we're putting to the secretary the requirement to develop a mentoring program that begins pre-commissioning to talk to a m- more diverse group of pre-commissioned people or pre-enlistment about the benefits uh, of the combat arms. Uh, whether you make a career out of the army or not, um, the, you know, a, a infantry officer after five years with the kinds of responsibility that you get Uh, You're going to be very attractive in the private sector, whether you're interested in going into the tech world, the finance world uh, or any other world, Uh, because when you speak with private sector employers, um, that's what they're interested in. So one of the things we've asked, we've directed the secretary to do is to come back with a mentoring program, focusing on how we diversify career fields, um, how we diversify um, um, uh, to achieve great what we do to create create greater um, diversity in the ranks. Uh, um, that are attained. Um, and then the other piece is, and, and I can go on and on with, with what's in the NDA, but in the elite sectors, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, naval aviation and, and, and navigators and aviators in the Air Force, special operations across the board. Uh, the, 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 the military has to do a better job of introducing um, a more diverse pool of candidates to those career fields. In many ways, they are self-selecting. Um, and, and let me give you one example, which, you know, I never I didn't think about this until I spoke with an army ranger. I spent 30 years in the army, but I, I didn't go to ranger school and said in order to go to ranger school, um, you've got to be able to swim because it's just one of the basics. And there is a higher percentage of young people of color who are who, are, who don't swim. And you can go you can have a long conversation about why that's the fact. So one of the things in my conversations with General Evans, who who, uh, commands the uh, cadet command, the Army cadet command, is they're looking at ways of introducing a swim training and, and requirement for ROTC cadets. And then this way, you know, little things like that, maybe you increase the pool of people looking at ranger school, infantry, armor, and ladders to higher ranks in the Army
0: also very prevalent this year, in addition to all the great work you're doing to address these core systemic problems in how the military recruits and promotes, you're also part of a bipartisan majority in the House and Senate that have come out against the um, Confederate base names. This is an issue on which the president has indicated he will veto the NDAA, um, whether it's the Senate form of it, which which still uh, has a provision against Confederate based naming, but is slightly less strenuous, if you will, than the House version. Can you talk a little bit as a service member and somebody who spoke to has spoken to a lot of service members who are African American or from another minority group? What what the impact is of, of working and living on a base that is named after a Confederate soldier. And also, maybe if you could weave into that issues around the symbolism, the flag, the Confederate flag issue.
1: Sure. You know, let me start by saying, you know, you know, 30 or so years ago, when I showed up at Fort Rucker, uh, you know, and I graduated from flight school first in my class. And, you know, the sky was a limit. I was excited about my service uh, in the Army in those early days. And honestly, I didn't know that you know, Rucker was a Confederate uh, general with an unremarkable career and his only connection to Alabama was that he was an industrialist who settled in Birmingham. Uh, when I went to advance camp at, at Fort Bragg and then deployed to, uh, to Iraq from Fort Bragg, I didn't know that Braxton Bragg was a, 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 a Confederate general who actually historians say was the worst Confederate general. And, you know, and when at the age of 43, um, I graduated from jump school. Uh, my wife thought I was crazy just to go to jump school at that age. You know, I didn't know that Benning was a Confederate officer and also with an unremarkable uh, career and was an ardent uh, secessionist. Uh, but today things are different. And I think that, you know, soldiers and sailor and airmen, marine, uh, are much more aware of these things particularly now that it's been part of the public debate the debates around symbols and 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 monuments and and who we pay homage to uh, and that you've got Statutes of Confederate officers uh, that were erected between 1890 and 1920, as a way to uh, really, um, you know, somehow recount and relive and to, and to, and memorialize this lost cause of the of the failure of the South to, you know, in the Civil War. Um, so people are much more aware of that. And symbols do matter. It, 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 it contributes to the culture of the military, uh, to the morale, the unit cohesion. So when soldiers today do show up at Rucker, Benning, and Bragg, they are very much aware of who those names belong to and what those men uh, represented. Uh, so I was excited that the Navy and the Marines um, went ahead and said, hey, no more display of the Confederate battle flag. Uh, I'm not as enthusiastic about Secretary Esper's effort. I think it's a, I think it's a way for him to try to ban the Confederate flag without saying the Confederate flag, but it's actually overly sweeping and it will um, prohibit things like display of the of the gay pride flag. And I think that's wrong. Um, and um, so, um, um, but but that the services are moving in that direction, I think, is important. Um, and and Congress includes that in the NDA as well as renaming. Uh, the Confederate bases. The only difference, the major difference between the Senate and the House is they're talking about three years. We're talking about one year. It, it received bipartisan support. I think the president's going to be hard pressed to veto the Defense Authorization Act over that issue. Um, and if he were to do that, um, then um, I, I actually believe that Um, uh, Notwithstanding, we've been unable to override any presidential vetoes in the 115th or 116th Congress, this may very well be the first that we would override.
0: Another intersectional issue, as you mentioned, the intersections between domestic and national security policy is on justice, and in this case, military justice. Can you comment on uh, the degree to which the changes you're proposing relate to any concerns about how the military justice system treats brown and black people?
1: Sure, and there've been a lot of good studies done by um, a lot of advocacy groups that are looking at the the disparate racial treatment under the Uniform Code of Military uh, Justice. Um, And in 2019, um, I believe it was uh, Elijah Cummings um, and uh, Gwen Moore, Representative Gwen Moore, they um, introduced an amendment uh, to the NDA that asked the GAO to study this issue. And what we found um, is, is very alarming, and that is for um, particularly in j- the ranks of the junior enlisted, uh, the treatment under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, judicial and non-judicial punishment um, is alarmingly much higher uh, for you know that young um, you know, black um, uh, buck sergeant. Um, and I think it's a command, uh, a real, uh, it's a command issue. And why, and why I say that is because, uh, you know, Dr. Hicks, what we see is that junior enlisted of color are referred to court martial at higher rates. But then when you look at the outcomes of the court martial, the punishments are about the same, whether you're white or black. So in, in many ways, you could say the system is fair, but what's going on with What's going on with commanders? It goes back to culture. Do we value diversity and inclusion? Do we, um, do we invest in understanding the men and women who serve under us? And part of that is making sure we have more diverse leadership um, who's leading a more diverse um, um, core of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, right? You, and you had the statistics I think you offered earlier, 43% of, 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 uh, of the military uh, are uh, people of color, uh, service members of color, yet uh, only two of the highest ranking you know, four star generals and admirals are, are black, May, uh, General Garrett and, and General Brown. So part of it is diversifying leadership, part of it is introducing more diversity uh, um, and, and training on implicit bias uh, for all commanders at every level. Uh, so there's a command problem that I think we can, we can fix.
0: Uh, part of the challenge you just pointed out is the leadership pipeline. Uh, how? What? What's your estimate for how quickly, or how reasonable should we be in terms of thinking how quickly we can shift the? Fraction the percent of senior leadership in the military to a more diverse profile across that leadership core And I just want to tack on there some people may be watching now, but certainly, you know within the ranks will will grumble that their readiness concerns Challenges that arise from trying to reach some kind of set of diversity goals so I'd love for you to also address that's been an argument whether it was integration uh, of uh, African-Americans women um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, this is a continuing debate over readiness. So how quickly can we really shift and is it going to take a readiness toll?
1: And let, let's start with the readiness piece because in 19, as early as 1950, um, two years after Truman's order, so you have the president t- saying to the military, you will integrate. Uh, some embraced it, many didn't, but it was an order, so they did it. Say, hey! This is going to impact readiness, morale, cohesion, effectiveness—you name it. Skies falling. In the 1950s, the DOD did a study, um, and they've done many studies ever since. And since that very first study, what what was proven is that um, uh, racial integration, later, you know, sort of uh, gender and even along um, sexual orientation, uh, that it does not impact readiness, and it, it it enhances effectiveness because diversity. Um, uh, By race, ethnicity and gender background and experience contributes to innovation, innovative problem solving innovation in incorporating technology. So from the earliest days, uh, that was debunked and and, and dispelled. Um, and and the, that that's why I'm surprised when I when I still continue to hear today that oh the military shouldn't be a a, uh, a social experiment right uh, we don't know the impact on morale um, you know and um, so so first of all I, I, I think that it's been proven um, by 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 um, credible studies um, that have done both been done both inside and outside the military that um, that uh, that. Seeking greater diversity and inclusion does not impact um, readiness. So, how long is it going to take? You know, there's that story, right, of the of the of the of the granddaughter talking to the grandma says, uh, hey, Grandma, uh, when is the best time to plant a tree? And Grandma says, well, you know, to, build, to, to plant a tree, and it grows, and it has a big canopy, and it provides a cooler environment in the summer and a warmer environment in the winter, and it provides for the regeneration of, of oxygen and the aesthetic value. Well, let me see. Um, probably the best time, 20 years ago. The granddaughter looks at the grandma and says, Wow, well, Grandma, when is the second best time? And Grandma says, right now. So we've got to act right now so that sure, we can begin filling that pipeline to achieve greater diversity and inclusion, not only at the higher ranks, but across all career fields, and that's why we have, and I truly hope, and, and I know hope is not a strategy. We're working hard. My team is. We're working across the aisle and across the 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 uh, the, the, the halls uh, to the Senate. That that coming out of the conference committee are these very important provisions. Whether it's we're we're, we're going to require greater diversity on promotion boards, uh, we're going to codify uh, Secretary Esper's. Um, a directive to remove photos and gender and race identifiers from selection boards because we know that studies show you can take a selection board give them the same 20 files and if they know race and identity you get a less diverse pool of selectees if they don't know it same profiles you get just naturally occurring greater diversity so we're going to codify that Um, And a number of other provisions. So now is the time to put into the NDA those types of things that hopefully 15 years from now, someone's going to be saying, Dr. Hicks, why uh, 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 in the world are we doing uh, a CSIS uh, um, panel discussion on diversity and inclusion, other than to celebrate the accomplishments uh, of the last 15 years.
0: So moving from the military piece, which itself is massive, out into the national security sector, defense civilian, other agencies and departments in the federal government, the research institutions, places like CSIS, and Capitol Hill, how do you think about growing representation for national security issues? You're the only member, I believe, of the Congressional Black Caucus serving at the leadership level on the House and Center Armed Services Committees. Um, how do we change that so that it's an area of inquiry and interest and funding and support uh, beyond the military itself?
1: Sure. So, we all have our roles and responsibilities. And, um, you know, if CSIS makes that commitment uh, and you're developing your intern programs where you're really focusing on and fellowship programs, bringing in a diverse um, a set of, of talent, uh, that you're doing your part. Uh, so, what, what, what part is Congress doing? Um, and so much of it often comes down to how we're spending our money. Um, so um, I, I, I'm working with the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, we've done a number of things, um, trying to create more opportunities for uh, in the STEM fields, some that will lead for military service, some non-military service, some national security and some not, uh, but increasing the, 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 the number of, of men and women of color who go into STEM fields, uh, we've done that by making greater investments in historically black colleges and universities and minority-serving institutions. Uh, we've doubled the amount of money that goes uh, to those schools from the DOD um, uh, to support those programs, although still, it's still a minuscule amount. Uh, this year, uh, we introduced um, a, uh, an amendment to the NDA uh, that would create a, a scholarship uh, for students at HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, and minority-serving institutions who want to go into a national security field, um, and and by national security we don't necessarily mean DOD or State Department. It could be it could be state or tribal um, national security fields. Uh, because when I sit in the Armed Services Committee, uh, and I look out on the audience, uh, and I see very few women, uh, and I see very few people of color. Um, regardless of the topics that we're talking about, it's clear to me that we need greater diversity and inclusion in the broader um, um, discussion uh, and positions. I've traveled to uh, embassies, U.S. embassies on almost every continent uh, and typical is the case uh, that I go into the embassy, I get the in-country brief uh, and there are um, very few um, uh, personnel of color um, I am beginning to see more and more uh, women um, and in leadership roles, and I'm excited about that. Uh, but whether it's the State Department, the Justice Department, uh, or the DOD, uh, we need greater diversity. That diversity is going to contribute to much better ideas and problem-solving and representation of the United States, both at home and abroad.
0: You know, you mentioned that there have been previous efforts along the lines of what you all have put into this um, FY21 NDA, which really is a remarkable, we can't possibly cover all the elements that you, that you and others have helped include in there. Uh, but this is the year where it appears to actually make progress. How strong do you think the bipartisan support is and enduring is that support uh, going forward for these kinds of efforts to improve diversity and reduce systemic racism in the military?
1: I think there's a tremendous amount of support, and and what I point to is the fact that there was such little debate on these issues. Uh, put aside the uh, Confederate naming, um, where there was considerable debate on that, uh, there was no debate on the uh, provision that barred the display of Confederate symbols. But putting aside both of those, uh, there was no debate in committee uh, and no debate on the House floor. Why? Because we achieved bipartisan consensus in formula, formulating these amendments, uh, they they were then offered on block uh, and without debate, um, uh, re, You know, were supported by both Democrats and Republicans. So that was in the House. Uh, there are fewer diversity and inclusion provisions in the Senate, but those two had little, if any, debate. So I think uh, that uh, when they go to conference, uh, they should, Um, um, easily have bipartisan support. And I have had conversations with Secretaries Esper uh, and McCarthy, uh, as well as the Navy secretary, the CNO, uh, the chairman, uh, and other senior um, um, uh, uniformed officials at the Pentagon. I said, look guys, I know how this process works, okay? And sometimes things go into conference and you wonder why they never made it out of conference. And I'm just asking you to make a commitment to call off any effort by anybody in the Pentagon to undermine these efforts in conference. And I got a commitment from all of them that we embrace these provisions. They give us the tools to do what we know we need to do. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to see the lion's share of these provisions uh, come out intact from the conference committee.
0: Congressman Brown, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for that. But especially thank you for your leadership. You mentioned at the beginning that this is an inflection point. I'm inclined to agree with you. But even inflection points take leadership to maximize the opportunity. So thank you for all that you and your colleagues are doing uh, on behalf of the U.S. military and our society.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hicks. And thank you to you and your colleagues at CSIS and all the participants today.
0: On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.